Hey everybody, welcome to the MLSDG podcast. We're back at it again this week. My name's Spencer Smith. I'm here with Eve Gorn. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be going over the MLS schedule release, which is finally here. It just took, you know, three weeks until this the kickoff for the season to begin for us to finally get it. And then we're going to dive into a little bit of the U23 Olympic breakdown of their past few games for the U.S., as well as a look to book their spot in Tokyo this summer when they play Honduras on Sunday. And we're going to cap it all off with the senior camp review, how they did against Jamaica, and what to expect moving forward. I'm pretty excited. I don't know. Eva, are you pretty excited for this? Because there's oh, some good I'm stuff. Thrilled. We're finally here. It's been a long and arduous offseason, but uh, MLS is almost back, baby. It's here. And it became a lot more real when the schedule released this last week. And I think there's a lot of talking points here. I mean, in the end, it is just a schedule. There's going to be a lot more when we dive into the games themselves and they're finally here. But I think the big thing that caught everybody's eye right off the bat is how much interconference play. You know, we have the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference. We are so used to those teams playing each other interconference week in, week out. But this one, it's really Western Conference plays Western Conference, Eastern Conference plays Eastern Conference. What are your initial takes when you saw that? I mean, I'll be honest, I, I understand why it's a thing. Obviously, we have the concerns around limiting travel due to COVID, but it, it's kind of unfair, right? You know, we look at the breakdown of what the uh, the teams look like this season, and it, it almost seems like the, the upper Eastern Conference teams are going to have a real advantage this season to me, because it seems to me that the the gap between the best and the worst in the East is, is bigger than the West this season. So the fact that they have to play each other so many times, I think is going to result in the Eastern Conference teams probably dominating the, the Shield um, conversation this season. Yeah. And it, it is a little bit tricky. We saw it last season with the way things broke down with uh, rearranging the schedule and how, for instance, Philadelphia played New England five times last season in the regular season, beat them each and every time, and then lost to them in the playoffs. So that level of familiarity is going to add a little bit of a, a trickiness with the, the tactical side of things. Um, but it, it's really interesting to see as well uh, just looking at who has who in terms of out-of-conference games and yeah. then kind of the, the away streaks that some teams have uh, this season as well there's a lot of components to this schedule that i think are going to be very interesting to see how it plays out because one thing that i noticed and i want to talk about what you just mentioned right there but the fact that this is interconference play when we get to the end of a season the past several weeks everybody is saying this is a six point game because not only can we win three points but we can take three points away from our rivals this is now how the entire season looks the entire season is now predominantly a six-point game every single game, which in some terms is exciting, but in some ways, just as you were saying, I think kind of take away from the level of how good really is this team. Because last season, we saw it with Philadelphia where everyone's like, they're the bomb, but there was also questions mark, like, is this an asterisk? You put an asterisk by 2020 because of all the variables. Are they really that good? Because we didn't get to see them play the Seattle and the Atlantas throughout the season like we normally would. Instead, like you mentioned, we saw them play New England five times. Not to take away from Philadelphia's success. I love them, and I really did 
enjoy seeing their success and development of the players, but it raises the question going into this season of, are we really going to be able to see teams full potentials or we're just going to be able to see a bunch of these rivalries and kind of have some teams take more advantage of it than others. Kind of like what you're saying with the Eastern conference dominant teams being able to kind of set a big gap there. I mean, you alluded to the the six point aspect. If every, if you know, every match, but two matches in the season is, um, you know, against folks in your conference, that means that every point you win matters that much more because you can increase that gap realistically. And I don't know, maybe we'll see more teams play it safe throughout the season mm-hmm. or we'll see a lot of draws because they know it means more in terms of their standing within the conference. Um, you know, maybe it'll make each game feel like, a, you know, a final. And so we'll have a little bit more intensity. We'll have a little bit more tenseness. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to say, you know, we'll, we'll see. Because it is the case on both sides of the conference as well. So, yeah. I think one interesting aspect to look at, and I know that you've kind of got some some matches in particular that caught your eye, but I'm looking at, for example, let's take a team like Seattle. Look at the teams that they're playing, because there are a few games where the Western Conference does travel to the East or vice versa, but there's only like two or three for each team. Seattle, an example of theirs is they play Atlanta, right? Atlanta, we it's popularity thing atlanta is a solid team we know that we know they're competing for trophies seattle's the same thing they're gonna duke it out it's gonna be a great game don't get me wrong but when you look at interconference and you see that real salt lake is playing their eastern conference team against chicago it it just kind of begs the question of like okay like the teams that are playing against each other in different conferences are almost there as like the these are the heavyweight matchups you know or is it some easy points? And that can also dictate, because if RSL can steal three points from Chicago, but Seattle's not able to steal that from Atlanta, that also, is that fair? Because they're playing different quality of teams, but it's not like they get a chance to play anybody else. It's just, you can only play the games that are in front of you. And so it's just kind of an interesting additional dynamic to an already weird schedule. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this idea of strength of schedule, right? You look at Atlanta, you mentioned them. They're, they're two Western Conference games this season, home to LAFC, away to Seattle. Yeah. Uh, Cincinnati starts the season away to Nashville, away to NYFC, NYCFC, and away to Orlando. Uh, same thing with a couple different teams. Looking at Colorado, they've got a three-game away streak in the middle of the season. RSL, Austin, Minnesota, that's not going to be easy. Uh, Vancouver, May to June, they've got... Uh, Minnesota, Sporting Kansas City, and Houston, and also RSL away within the span of a month. And then Columbus, I think, possibly have one of the trickier areas as well because you look at the the May stretch. They've got Toronto, New England, NYCFC. And then before that, they've got a potential CCL quarterfinal, second leg. And then if they get to the semifinals, Leg one is before away to Chicago and away to New York Red Bull. And then home to Seattle is before the second leg. So if, yeah. if Columbus wow. are going to make a CCL run, they really have to navigate some really tricky league games as well. 
yeah. you know, this this could really hurt us in in, uh, in Champions League the, this season. Either that, or or some of the big hitters in the league kind of take uh, take a loss on some of the league games, like we saw with uh, with Toronto in past years, where they make a run in the CCL, kind of sacrificing their mm-hmm. um, their MLS form. You know, I don't know how many teams, especially in a situation where we are still contending with COVID and injuries and the kind of thing. Do, do these teams really have a, a depth of squad to compete on multiple levels in this situation right now? Yeah, it's going to be a jam-packed schedule, especially since we're used to having the MLS season already started by this point. They usually start the last weekend of February, first week of March. We're now not starting until middle to end of April. You know, And something to also point out, um, you were talking about all these road teams and these difficult navigations for each team. The Canadian teams, I feel like probably... I get Columbus has it bad because of the multiple competitions, but let's look at the Canadian teams that do not play a home game until I don't know when. They are playing. Vancouver is starting their season in Salt Lake. Toronto and Montreal, I believe, are starting their season in Florida. That is making your home games, quote-unquote, definitely away games because Vancouver, you're playing at altitude. In Florida, you're playing in humidity. You're not used to that in Canada. Not only do you have that aspect of the home games not really being home games, but you know we, it, it's something that we talked about with respect to uh, to Henri uh, resigning at, at Montreal. These guys aren't going to get to see their families for weeks on end. You yeah. know, if you have a, a you know an unsettled group of, of players, that's going to affect their morale. That's going to affect their capacity to to play at the highest level. Um, you know the Canadian teams are at a real disadvantage until who knows when uh, throughout the season. I agree a hundred percent. I want I want it to be a fair schedule, but if we're being honest, this is one of the most confusing schedules that there is. And we're gonna see how each team handles it because I think that's gonna be another indicator of how well equipped these teams are from from players on the field to front office and head coaches being able to like with Columbus, make those decisions. I really hope they can find something else to like help off the field, like Canada not being able to see their families because that's massive. Hopefully this COVID thing is just done soon enough, you know, and we're able to not have these limitations. More so with the with these people being able to spend time with family and be able to just have a normal season. But again, hard to say. This is a schedule, though, that does have a lot of exciting matchups, given the circumstances, and it all starts in just a couple weeks, April 17th. We have kickoff, as well as some major games throughout the season, Heineken Rivalry Week, Decision Day. Are are there there any of those kind of games, Avery, that you're noticing that you just want to highlight from your perspective as big must-watch games? Oh, absolutely. I mean, taking a look at opening weekend, uh, Seattle versus Minnesota, we've got the rematch of the Western Conference Final. LAFC versus Austin, potentially a brutal start to life in MLS for Austin, right? They have to go away to LAFC in their first ever game. Uh, Columbus versus Philadelphia, MLS Cup versus Shield winners. That's three days after uh, the the Champions League second leg. Uh, And then Miami versus the Galaxy and what I have uh, officially dubbed the David Beckham Derby. The David Beckham Derby. I I like that. They They should make that the thing. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I want to kind of look a little bit at Heineken Rivalry Week. I think that there's a bunch of game decisions today. And to be honest, I'm just excited to sit and watch them all because 
It's been way too long. I have a bone to pick with Rivalry Week. Okay. Uh, I could see I could see it in you the moment <laughs> I said it, that there was something that you were just like, oh, I got to say this. So I, I'm going to pause for a second. What do you got to say? So uh, we talk about this whole concept because we've only been a league for, for 26 years, right? Yeah. And so much of this feels forced, you know, especially with how many times we have the interconference uh, games this season as far as you know, the New York teams and so on and so forth. And a lot of this stuff being kind of fabricated on historical regional U.S. sports rivalries yeah. without a, you know, a natural history to it. That said, there's a couple in particular that we do have this, this Heineken rivalry week that we got to highlight, right? Yeah. So New York Red Bulls, NYCFC, we know there's some legit animosity there. Yeah. NYCFC, we've been absolutely trounced historically in this game. They got a couple of times back uh, against Red Bull in recent history. But the fact that they're now, since what, last season, right, forced to share uh, the stadium with the Red Bulls, oh. it just ad- just adds fuel to the fire. I didn't and, even think of that. You know, just hoping that we're going to see some goals, some red cards. We've got Houston versus Dallas, always a good matchup in Texas. A little bit more of a traditional one in Galaxy versus San Jose. And then, of course, Seattle versus Columbus in the MLS Cup rematch. But... Listen up, MLS folks. Rivalry Week is missing the best rivalry match in MLS. Oh. Kansas City versus RSL. Okay. Especially in the Benny versus Beckerman days. <laughs> we see there's real genuine hate between those two teams. It made for explosive matches. And I think it was Benny who said it most. We just don't like those guys. Honestly, okay, I'm a weird dynamic. I grew up in Missouri. Kansas City's my team moved out here for school and work to Utah. And so the year I moved here, 2013, okay? 2013, there's a special type of hatred between these two teams. And I remember coming to to school and I was just decked out in my Kansas City gear right after they'd won MLS Cup. I never received more hated glances. And it was kind of like a good feeling because I'm like, that means they watched the game. This is good. But uh, that was the same season that they had a legitimate brawl in preseason that when Kansas City played at RSL, that they won in a 95th minute winner, Kansas City did, under some controversial red card that happened. And then, of course, you have, in my opinion, one of the best playoff shootouts for MLS Cup ever. Ridiculous. People are going to point to the fact that there weren't goals in that game, but it it had excitement. It had, uh, what, what, that was the game with the double dink. Dink, right? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. That one was a different oh, no, that's, one. That's, that's the Portland. one where uh, Jimmy Nielsen played with broken ribs and saved the saved a PK like in sudden death to keep Kansas City alive. So, I mean, like there's... I think 2013 MLS Cup Final, though. 2013 right? MLS Cup Final. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That was a... It was a bitter cold, for, bitter For me, hands down, one of the best MLS Cup Finals in, in my... MLS fandom. Yeah, honestly, I've always believed that they should uh, make that the Heineken rivalry week because there is so much more bad blood, especially RSL Colorado. I get that we have the Rocky Mountain Cup, but it's the rivalry's gone down in a lot of ways um, just because it's less exciting. It's kind of getting a little bit better with Colorado's youth, but now RSL's kind of declining, so it's a weird balance. But uh, the bad blood between these guys, they do play on decision day. If we look forward to the decision day, they play there at Kansas City. It should be noted that RSL does open their home stadium 
against Kansas City. And my wife did tell me that if I'm going to the game, I'm sitting with Kansas City. She's sitting with Salt Lake. So we'll see who's happy on the car ride home. But let, let's look at decision day, all right? That's one of my favorite days because kickoff happens at the same time for each conference. There's so many interchanging spots with playoff position that we've seen in recent years. Especially a few years ago, there was three teams that went into the playoffs and out of the playoffs, back into the playoffs, ultimately out. And it just makes for a kind of an exciting day. Um, so what are some things when you're looking at decision day that catch your mind besides that Salt Lake RSL match? Oh, we have major, major uh, Eastern Conference implications. NYCFC versus Philly, you know, potentially vying for a home field advantage in the playoffs. Same thing with uh, Nashville versus Red Bulls. Uh, and then looking to the Western Conference, San Jose versus Dallas. Uh, you know, that could be a matchup of, of who's going to yeah. get that final Western Conference playoff spot. That really could. I, I want to look at one. I think it's not going to grab all the headlines and everything, but the FC Cincinnati Atlanta game is one that I think is, is an interesting one just from the aspect of Cincinnati to me is kind of a wild card. I don't expect them to make the playoffs, but I also expect them to win some games that they are not supposed to. And at this point of the season, not only do I think, are you looking at the final playoff position? I think if you're in the Eastern conference, like we already kind of talked about, they're the ones vying for a supporter shield and Atlanta should be in that conversation. And so that's one to look at for more of the the upset. You want to support the underdog. Cincinnati is your underdog. And to be able to take down a team like Atlanta when they're wanting Supporters Shield, that could be a really interesting one, just to kind of throw another one out there. Oh, absolutely. If you're looking at, at you know Cincinnati potentially spoiling, spoiling the party for Atlanta on the last day, whether they're you know competing for the Shield, whether they're competing for home field advantage in the playoffs, uh, I think there's still a role to play for those teams that, you know, maybe you have a team that's out of playoffs or knows where they're going to be. Doesn't really have a lot of change with that. I think Red Bull was the case with that, where they were kind of floating around that fourth, mm -hmm. fifth spot. They knew that they were in the playoffs, but they weren't going to get home field advantage, yeah. but you can really play a uh, spoil sport in those games to the other teams around you. It makes that day really filled with adrenaline, really exciting. Honestly, like I've said already in the show, I am just excited to be able to binge watch soccer again. It's going to be a great season. These are some great matchups. We're going to have a lot to discuss when we actually kick off the season again, just on April 17th, just a few weeks away. With that being said, everybody, let's kind of turn our attention to more prevalent, more today news. It should be noted that the United States plays in the semifinal of Olympic qualifying this Sunday against Honduras. The winner of that game books their ticket to Tokyo for a chance to win a gold medal this summer, okay? The United States has not qualified since 2008. 2008, Brian McBride was their captain. He was brought in as an overage player because we know it's U23, but when the United States Federation president was representing the country the last time they were in Olympics, 13 years ago, it's time to change that. And Honduras is not going to be easy. Honduras has made the past three Olympics... And they're going to have a, their work count out for them, especially after kind of some of the takeaways from these last performances that they had that we've already discussed their very first game, right, against Costa Rica. We saw some better stuff from Dominican Republic that we're about to talk about, and then Mexico following, but there's still a lot of questions. 
But let's kind of break down at beginning with that Dominican Republic game. Avery, when you watched that game that just happened about a week ago, what do you notice? Well, it's a tale of two halves, halves really. You know, looking at the first half, uh, they, they struggled offensively. You have to give credit to the Dominican Republic. They play some really exciting soccer. This was huge for them to be even involved in the tournament. So it's a massive step for, for them in the right direction. Um, yeah. You know, have to highlight, obviously, Inter-Miami's Edison Escona uh, as a particularly impressive player. We'll see what he does in, in MLS this season if he gets games. Uh, he's a young guy, so, you know, potentially really exciting for them for the future. Uh, but we've seen a couple times in this tournament, right, looking at how Julian Araujo has been targeted defensively and struggled. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the first half, Vines and Araujo were getting forward pretty nicely, creating some chances from crossing positions, particularly uh, that header that, uh, that that Johnny had from that Vines cross late in the first half. But it really came alive in the second half, right? Uh, Asani Dotson, two goals. Mihailovic, two goals and an assist. Uh, you know, bringing those guys on off the bench, uh, really just was the offensive catalyst. You know, yeah. those runs into the box, that combination play, you know, that guy, Jackson, you had a gorgeous flick for that first goal. Really it's nice. just about getting, getting bodies into the box, right? You know, it can't just be your striker who's putting in those goals. Benji Michelle, you know, we complained about him in that first match. We talked about it in, in his effectiveness or ineffectiveness rather against uh, Costa Rica, but mm-hmm. you're getting to the end line for that cross and just having that, that tap in for um, Hylovic on the final goal. This is the, the sort of movement that we've been dying to see from him uh, yeah. this whole tournament. You know, it's no coincidence as well that uh, things came together, unfortunately, when uh, when Ferreira came off. But this shows the the contrast in styles, right, between Ferreira and Soto. Soto comes on, you have, a, you know, an actual number nine who's going to you know hold the ball up and who's going to have guys play off of him, provide the presence, you know, up top, and uh, just have the, the midfielders and wingers work off of him and... Yeah. You know, four, four goals it speaks, speaks for, for itself. itself. <laughs> Honestly, one thing that I noticed about that game, of course, tail two halves. It wasn't beautiful in the first half. The second half, that was Jason Christ as a head coach making the right decisions. And I know we've questioned a lot of his decisions, but that was a game that they needed to win, right? If they'd lost that game going in and needing a result against Mexico, it wasn't going to happen. And so when it's 0-0 at halftime and he's sitting there, he's like, we got to dominate this. Not only did he make the right moves, but the players made the right decisions. You already said it. Mihalovic and Dodson subbing in changed it. And you could see it. You could feel it. But there were just some constants in there that made, made it what it was. I think Yule was the big one for me. Of course, he got the opening goal. Beautiful little flick. But... You kind of saw him turn it off and turn it on, excuse me, in the second half and being able to not only was he able to be a little bit more decisive in his passes that we like to see because he wasn't being man marked as much, but he was able to come in and make that run, which ultimately led to the open goal, the opening goal. And that kind of opened the floodgates from there to be able to allow Mihalovic and Dodson thrive. The substitutions came at the right time. They were the right people. Um, they were gay, being able to give important rest to some players uh, in head of Mexico and the potential semifinals game. So honestly, from the Dominican Republic game, when you finish 4-0 um, after a pretty cruddy first half, that that's a good result. It, it books you a spot in the semifinals, but it does mean that you got to play Mexico next, and that wasn't convincing. Look at it this way. If the Dominican Republic match was... Uh... 
a case of Jason Christ making the right, right decisions, Mexico was the exact opposite. <laughs> uh, you know, it just I, we talk about this whole idea of like generational trauma, right? Yeah. Uh, and one of my biggest takeaways is, is the idea that the U.S. played scared against Mexico, right? So historically speaking, U.S. teams go into Mexico. This is almost exclusively with away games, right? We play that entire game on the back foot. Was really hoping that we had grown past that mentality, but first half in particular was a huge example of that. You know, this isn't a Belichick defense. It's not uh, bend, not break. <laughs> and we just saw that defending for 45 minutes and then one mistake and they, they can see the all important goal right before halftime. That, um, that hurt. That hurt. And it was, to me, I had questions why Soto was so far back. And if you look, he didn't even look. It was a bad pass, but he didn't even look. And it just, when you misplace a pass and you happen to misplace it at the top of the 18 to Mexico's best player, in my opinion, of that game, Uriel uh, Antuna, who was just on loan at the Galaxy in, the, in this past season. It uh, it's not a position you want to be in, and it sucks that that was the deciding goal right there. We saw in the second half, and I think we were actually talking at halftime about what to expect. And I literally just told you, I'm like, the U.S. is going to have one to two opportunities. They're not going to be able to put it away. This game finishes one zero, and that's exactly what happened. Because the second half, it's not like a lot changed. Well, it's it's one of the most frustrating things seeing. We've had these conversations time and time again. We've talked about it on the podcast talking about Jason Christ and his insistence on, on this stylistic uh, ideals, right? You know, we're trying to have that continuity between the, the U23 side and uh, the full national team, and it, it's half there, right? So, you know, we saw it on the on the defensive side. They're passing out of the back. Uh, I have to give credit to guys like Kessler and, uh, and surprisingly yeah. enough, Panetta, uh, yeah. even playing on the weaker side, especially with Herrera as well. They did a great job to power through that, you know, but the whole thing that Christ talked about from an offensive perspective was the pressing and counter-pressing, right? Mm-hmm. And he just didn't see that when the U.S. was out without the ball. You know, they're letting Mexico dictate the game. They're letting Mexico, you know, dominate and, and bring the game to them. And you have to have both elements, you know, tactically, right? Um, you know, we go back to, to some of the, the decision-making with Christ. Look, I get rotating guys and and you know having to play guys out of position because of the way that the, the squad is structured. But uh, look, Mihailovic on the wing, he just doesn't make the kind no. of in and out runs that you want from a winger. The the long balls that they were trying out of the back weren't reaching. He just didn't have the pace. Uh, Herrera trying to you know come up from left back, but it's not comfortable on that opposite side. They're trying to get crosses in. Uh, you know, looking at Johnny too, I, I with him, I just I can't decide whether it, it's it's a quality issue, where he's simply being asked to play further forward, where he's not comfortable throughout this tournament. Um, yeah. There, there. Was... And then looking at the second half, I mean, it, it did improve, right? Because we did have a couple of different chances. We talked about it, you know, a couple of big chances, uh, you know, from like the 60th minute on. But what's he doing bringing on I was you, about to say that. Lewis Ferrero, who was on a yellow card, in the second half of the game that doesn't matter? Yeah. You know, maybe if we played like that all game, we wouldn't have lost. But it's, it's a massive risk ahead of a semifinal that Christ just didn't need to make. It defeated the purpose of resting them. 
in my opinion. I fully supported it at the beginning. I see Yule off. I see Lewis off. I see Ferreira. I see Justin Glad. And I'm like, okay, this sucks when we're about to play Mexico, who's our rival. But this makes sense because this is a calculated risk towards, hey, you know what? This game, we've got the points that we need in our group. We're going through. Yeah, if we can win the group, great. And we want to leave on our best foot forward. But ultimately, the more important game is against Honduras. And hopefully we can play Mexico again in a final, which we anticipate. But bringing on Ferreira, who could have and thankfully didn't get the yellow, that would have disqualified him when he's clearly the most productive striker that we have. Bringing on Lewis and Yule to play for a half an hour when they have to play three days later, four days later, it just didn't make sense because you're having them play at altitude when you could have just rested them. You could have brought on other players and instead unnecessary risk and it didn't bring anything. It just fell flat still, which is almost more depressing going into a Honduras game when you see the people that we were supposed to rest still come into a game and then they weren't able to change it that doesn't spark confidence in me and against a Honduras team that has qualified for the Olympics the past three times that doesn't spark confidence in me seeing that our striker who's supposed to score all the goals didn't get a touch or anything for that matter from Yule or Lewis who was subbed in and yet those are the people who are supposed to bring us to victory against Honduras it just didn't make sense from Jason Christ the the decisions I questioned from the beginning, I, I I don't know. I don't know what to expect. That said, I think looking at the big picture, uh, you know, it's a lot less doom and gloom than it's been in, in past years, I right? I agree because, with that, yeah. When you consider the fact that this was arguably our third choice uh, U23 side, right, versus basically Mexico's a U23 side. Yeah. I mean, I think they're missing three or four guys either through injury or maybe – you know, one or two guys like, uh, you know, Diego Linas is uh, is European-based, who wasn't in the squad. But you, you look at Mexico's uh, senior squad, they only have a handful of guys under 25. Mm. Uh, so with, you know, not to make a bold prediction or anything like that, but I could see us surpassing Mexico within the next four to five years. I would love it. Because, I mean, most of their squad is, is 30 and above. And if they don't have guys at a younger age, you know, if it's all of these Mexico guy based guys who are coming from the Olympic squad, who are filtering into the full national team, look, we, we have an entire generation of guys who are in Europe right now who are going to, you know, kick it up a notch. So, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The future's bright. The right now is where I've got the questions. Um, but if we were bringing in like a full strength team, understand that that does mean people like Pulisic. That does mean people like, Serginho Dest, who just went off this week, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, and people like Yunus Musa. You know, like we would be able to qualify, in my opinion, with a breeze. But with the team that we have there and with the tactics that are being employed, it was just a difficult game. Um, it's one that I hope can change. And honestly, as much as I was like, we're going to die a moment ago against Honduras, and I had no confidence and faith, I, I want to clarify, I do. I really think that we do. This Honduras team is good. But I do believe that the United States can be better. Now, now will we? We're going to find out on Sunday. But I believe that we really can be. And that's because of where it starts. In my opinion, in the back, we, had, we didn't talk about him a lot a second ago. Uh, David Ochoa, in my opinion, needs to start again. He was unlucky on the one goal because of that really bad back pass. But that wasn't his control. And he really 
did a dominant force in being able to hold down the back. He had a little impressive uh, Cruyff that he made for the sliding defender there. That was just nice to watch. It made your heart skip a beat for a second, but he's just risen above and beyond in this tournament. You know, I it, it's a little bit frustrating that it's taken this long and that Christ has rotated a lot throughout the course of this tournament. I get it. He's trying to keep the guys fresh. You know, a lot of these guys are in preseason for, for MLS teams. But it's great now that ahead of the semifinal, looking forward, we know what our best available lineup is, right? Yeah. You know, you're looking at Ochoa in goal, Herrera, Glad, Kessler, and Vines in the back. You know, the guys have just performed the, the best out of who's available. And then that midfield trio of Ewell, Dawson, and Mihailovic, it's the guys who we know are going to be able to combine, who have that ability to, you know, play that kind of, you know, back and forth number eight where they are, you know, contributing to the defense, but they're getting into the box offensively. And then Lewis, Ferrer, and Saucedo, um, you know, honestly, we could see Soto come in there if they are looking for more of a, a traditional number nine. But I think, generally speaking, the guys who aren't part of the best 11 have, have played their way out of contention throughout this tournament, right? Like yeah. we've seen Araujo struggle defensively. Really we've bad. seen Johnny struggle, uh, you know, I, I praised him earlier, but Benji Michelle has, has had, you know, difficulty retaining the ball throughout this game. The, the lineup picks itself essentially. Yeah. I think it's uh this is, I think honestly we agree in this lineup when we, when we talked after the review of the uh, Costa Rica game, we had some like, Questions like, oh, here or there, or I'd like to see this. But I think when we're about to play a do-or-die game, it's important to know who that 11 are. I th- I think we agree. It'll be interesting to see if Christ agrees, especially with that center-back pairing, because it's no doubt Justin Glad starting. He rested because they need him full strength. Kessler, Pineda, I agree Kessler did really well, um, especially better at the passing than... Pineda has looked and he should start there, but it'll be interesting to see what uh, Christ has up his sleeve there. But otherwise up the field, it does speak for itself because the production hasn't really come from anywhere else. It it hasn't come from Tessman. It hasn't come from Perea. It hasn't come from Michelle. It's, it's come from Ferreira. It's come from Yule. It's come from Lewis. Those guys being able to spray it out wide and then Lewis take on a man with his speed hit a ball into Ferreira. We saw that uh, time and time again. And it's something that they're going to need when they're playing this Honduras team. Looking at Honduras, especially, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many folks out there necessarily took the time to uh, to watch their final game against Canada, but uh, really, really insightful in terms of the, the type of team they are, right? You know, physical attacking side, very traditional CONCACAF, right? They press with plenty of energy, uh, which we had challenges against, you know, Costa Rica and Mexico in previous games. They do have some some really nice attacking talent. You know, Rigoberto Rivas uh, plays in Italy. Uh, Derek Sanfuelto and Luis Palma as well. And, you know, some U.S. fans out there that might be listening are going to be familiar with some of the names on the squad. Um, Luis Carlos Obregón plays in uh, Houston's USL team, Rio Grande Valley Toros. Douglas Martinez plays for RSL. So uh, these guys are, they're a bit of a known quantity, right? You know, uh, a less, I'll, uh, I'll liken them to a, a lesser version of the, the Costa Rica side that we played in that first match. Uh, 
looking at that game against Canada, uh, you know, I got to say, I feel pretty confident. Now, they created a lot of great chances, mm-hmm. but their finishing was atrocious. And Canada was just handing them chance after chance. They tried to play out of the back like the U.S. has done throughout this tournament. But it wasn't <laughs> I'd say pr- pretty, pretty unsuccessfully so. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the one big thing to point out, though, no Kervin Ariaga. He's the heart of their midfield. He got a yellow against Canada. Will be suspended for that semifinal match. Um, set pieces as well. They scored and conceded off them against Canada. Uh, and I, you know, I think there is maybe opportunity to exploit our numbers advantage in midfield. We do play midfield three. They play more of a four four two. They've got this this great uh, left back Wesley Dekas who loves to get forward. I definitely think that's an area that the U.S. can target as well in terms of either pinning him back or exploiting the space he lives in behind. So there are opportunities for yeah. this U.S. team against Honduras. You know, we can't be complacent. We have to to play to the best of our ability. But um, it could be a lot worse. We could be playing Mexico again. Oh yeah, uh, I'm really grateful we're not. When we look at this Honduras game, you already said it there, there's going to be opportunities. It's not a question of if we can make them because I really do believe that we will. Lewis is going to be able to... Lewis and Salcedo, I think, have some of the best confidence. Um, Granted, it sometimes fizzles out, but if they can be on their game, or at least even if one of them can and be able to exploit that wing, be able to earn a foul of that set piece or be able to hit one in for Ferreira, I think that we're going to see a much more convincing side than we did against Mexico. Um, I think it's going to be kind of somewhere between the the Dominican Republic game. You know how we talked it was a tale of two halves. I think we're going to see kind of like a little bit of both, if I'm being honest. There's going to be times that Honduras really is going to press us and push us back. And they do need to be credited that they are good on the restart. They're also really good at being able to build up in... Uh, through the wing when they try to get a little centralized it kind of loses some of its flavor if you will and they aren't able to finish from that point but they're able to have some really good combination play that is going to threaten the united states ultimately i have the united states winning i think it's going to be closer one because i still think the u.s is still raw but this honduras team is also raw and you said it yourself they're going to be missing their star player that's a huge blessing for a United States team looking to make a Olympic uh, send an Olympic team for the first time in 13 years so I have them going and I have them playing Mexico again in the finals but at that point your tickets booked to Tokyo you can feel good about where you're at and then it's about on to the next step I don't know what do you what do you think when we look at this game on Sunday I feel good uh, you know I think they're gonna have to weather the storm in the first half but looking at the way that Honduras played in that second half against Canada they were tired, they were throwing numbers forward, but it was organized chaos, really. You know, they had a lot of guys in the, the middle of the field. As you mentioned, they tried to create through the wings and kind of struggled when things got a little bit more central. Um, but, you know, if they kind of play with that same level of, I don't know, delirium to a certain extent, as they kind of get more tired throughout the game. And it, desperate. You know, th- this, this U.S. team has been a second-half team yeah. in this tournament so far. So... You know, hang on in the first half, try not to concede any goals, and then hit them on the counterattack at the second half, and I, I think we can get a couple goals. Yeah, I think this one's going to be a little closer. I think it's 3-1 the United States, but it's a very that's a 
uh, not as convincing as Gorland because I think their last goal is going to come on like some fluke counter of after Honduras pushes all of them forward. It's going to be a tighter game than I think people realize. Honduras is not a joke. They are a serious team. And they're going to be able to do some serious damage if the U.S. is not quite ready. But we're going to find out Sunday, Sunday night when they play the semifinal game to book a ticket to Tokyo. I can't stress that enough. I'm excited to support them. I hope you guys are too. Uh, let's turn our attention, though, to the other side of the ocean. Okay, the United States senior team played some friendlies. Well, excuse me, played a friendly, has another one scheduled for Sunday as well. Um, but they just played Jamaica. Jamaica in a 4-1 win. A win that looked really nice. Like, I, I, I really enjoyed watching that game. It's always interesting watching a game in delay. I didn't get the opportunity to see it live. Did watch it uh, this morning in, in uh, you know, in preparation for this podcast. It's always interesting to me to see the the contrast between social media and reality, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of fear mongering on social media regarding uh, some of the performances of the defensive players, and you know, kind of had that in my head watching the game in delay and you go and you watch it and you go, you know, okay, you have some mistakes here and there, but, uh, you know, this isn't the end of the world. It's not, you know, all, all doom and gloom. Right. So, uh, you know, we, we talk about this idea of winners and losers, especially in a friendly match, looking at the, the greater pool. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, for, for you, who are your, your winners from this match? You think? My, my winners first and foremost, Serginho Dest. He got man of the match, but the guy, you can tell he plays with a really good player at Barcelona. I don't know who he would be, but uh, no, but you can see he's paying attention and he's learning and he's soaking it in. And the confidence is at another level. Obviously, he got the brilliant goal, but it wasn't just that. He did really well, especially playing in a left back position. He, he can play left back or right back, but he did really well being able to help the U.S. play out of the back because the U.S. isn't quite there where they're able to pass around everybody. They need somebody to take a guy on at some point, and Dest has no problem doing that. And if he messes up for whatever reason, which he didn't in this game, but if he does, the guy has the speed to be able to get back, so he's one winner that just sticks out. Um, two other ones are two that, when we did our predictions, I was really surprised that they were there, but I think were winners in my book, Sebastian Legette and Kellen Acosta. I... I'm, I need to apologize to Kellen Acosta because I said that he didn't deserve to be there. I was confused. And playing in that number six, which I didn't expect, he did really, really well. Granted, against this Jamaica team that is not used to together, a bunch of COVID protocols, it wasn't Jamaica's first choice lineup. It could be a system and a tactic that we'll see when we play their first choice lineup. But not all the players... and. Still, he did really well. He deserves another look is really what I say there. And then Sebastian Legette, man, people can pick on him all he wants. He can You can call him Burhalter's favorite, but if he's Burhalter's favorite and he's getting a brace, if he's able to put in a solid shift where he really doesn't set a foot wrong, who cares? I love it. Keep him on the roster. I fully expect to see Sebastian Legette on the World Cup qualifying roster. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you look at somebody like Serginho Dest, you, you didn't think that his 
stock could get any higher than it already is, right? Oh. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, was a major uh, recruitment win stealing him from Holland. Uh, he's playing at Barcelona now. The guy looks totally comfortable on his weaker side, playing out of pressure, drifting into central midfield mm. and taking on three guys. I mean, to have such a baller who's playing as a defender was just an absolute joy to watch. It's nice. Uh, you know, again, you mentioned Kellen Acosta as well. I'm in the same boat with you. I do have to apologize. You know, the guy looked totally comfortable. He didn't look out of place yeah. at all. Uh, this is, is somebody that I, I did expect to, to struggle. And uh, to his credit, this you know, this is a guy that Burhalter said he needed to get better. And uh, he has. frankly, yeah, he's done it. You know, same thing with uh, Sebastian Lillet. Look, we can call him one of Burhalter's main guys. You can talk about that bias, but he showed why he's one of Burhalter's guys today. He found space. He took his chances. He offers something that some other players in the pool don't. And look, I know people are going to have qualms. Oh, he plays in the MLS and, and that kind of thing. And look, this is a guy that if it weren't for injuries, mm-hmm. he was on the books at West Ham. Yeah. He had a manager who didn't like him. Uh, this is a guy who who is a talent uh, and should commend more respect, frankly. yeah. You know, just because a guy is playing in MLS doesn't mean that he's an MLS-level guy, per se, right? Yeah. And you need those role players in any squad, you know, whether it's a guy who's going to be able to play in multiple positions or have a specific function for you. Um, look, there are, are guys in plenty of other national teams who maybe don't even play at the club level, but the, the national team manager knows that he's going to be able to rely on him for a certain specific function. You know, we saw it like looking back at the 2014 World Cup and um, you know, bringing on Tim Krul for a penalty kick shootout who wasn't even the starting keeper, but goes and then wins them a penalty shootout. To have a guy like that on the roster, it, it, you need that in major tournaments. So if Sebastian yeah. Legette is on the, you know, the World Cup roster in 2022, I, no absolutely problem. zero issue with that. No. I think it's also well-deserved, and he has a fantastic individual story coming back from injury a horrific injury in World Cup qualifying uh, in the last cycle to being able to be where he is today is remarkable. Um, I do want to look at a few more winners. Um, these are the winners that I saw that came off the bench. First of all, Brendan Aronson did great coming on at halftime, obviously got the goal, but he just was able to spark the attack in ways that uh, the U.S. needed because the first half was good, but the second half is where they really succeeded. And as well as uh, Luca De La Torre, he was surprising. I don't know if either of us knew a ton about him. And so my question was like, I don't know what to expect, but he did really well. He obviously got the assist on the last goal, but he looked comfortable in the transition. He looked being able to track back, play the simple, the right ball, but, but he didn't step a foot wrong in his time on the field. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking back at that, Brendan Aronson, obviously we know this is a guy who is bright and up and coming made the, the recent move to Salzburg and he's just he's become so much more decisive in his short time in Europe. Yeah. He looked explosive off of the bench, you know, playing from that that left hand side. Uh, you know, could he be a, a super sub in World Cup qualifying? That's that's a different question to ask. You know, there are questions around kind of that player pool on the wing at the moment. Uh, you know, guys like Ariola and, and uh, Tyler Boyd aren't necessarily the most in form right now. 
Jordan Morris is, you know, out with that ACL injury. It could be a huge opportunity for Aronson to come in and to a position that he wasn't necessarily looked at traditionally. This was a guy who was kind of seen as either a number 10 or more of a box-to-box midfielder, but has made that kind of transition to a left-sided midfielder, you know, coming inside. Uh, for Zaltzberg played there a little bit for Philadelphia as well. Uh, another guy that I have to give massive props to, uh, Josh Sargent. I mean, oh, the yeah. link play between him and, and, and Reyna, you know, Sergeant drifting wide at times, particularly on that uh, on that second goal, right mm-hmm. for uh, for Aronson. Uh, look, he's put in the hard work. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of him and Werder Bremen because he hasn't been getting the goals, and you know, there are a lot of questions around who is you know starting number nine for the the men's national team. And yeah. look, Sergeant is really growing into his role, and I would have no issue with him going forward as as the number nine. Yeah, I still think that I uh, I want to see some more from Josh Sargent. I think he did really well, and that assist that he had was really nice, just kind of the little step over from the side to find Aronson. Uh, I want to see, because when I think of my number nine, I, I mean, there were four goals scored, and I don't know how many shots Josh Sargent had, and I get there was some good combination play, but I think he only finished with maybe like two shots on target. And I so I want to see a little bit more of him, I still think he's capable of that number nine. I wish Daryl DK had been healthy because I would have loved to have seen him sub into that game as well. Um, Hopefully, I know he's still with the team, so maybe his injury was more, uh, we're not going to take the risk, give him some more time and more of a break, and then uh, play him during Northern Ireland because I think that there could be a healthy competition there. They both offer different things. Uh, I think of... Josh Sargent is more of like the fox in the box, going to make more of the silky smooth runs. Granted, DK does really good at that too, but he's also more of the physical Josie Altidore-esque player that the U.S. kind of needs. But yeah, I would definitely consider Josh Sargent a winner in this. There are some losers, though, in this game. And to me, I'm going to start it off with maybe some more of the surprising ones hot take ones Reyna and Pulisic I wasn't this is the first time that they both played together and it just kind of lacked for me maybe that's just me uh, and I want to hear your take on this Pulisic obviously only in the first 45 minutes that was a predetermined sub that was not taken out because of performance that was decided before the game Um, but Pulisic looked evidently frustrated um, you could see that he wasn't getting the time in Chelsea under under uh, Tuchel like he, he should be. Um, and then Reyna looked so promising until the final product. And then the final product was wide or mishit. And so not necessarily as much qualms, but those two players lacked and fell short of the expectations that I think we all had in our head. Yeah, it's it's a matter of growing pains, right? I don't want to make too much of it especially with uh, any of the, the guys we're going to talk about today with the losers. Yeah. There are a couple others I want to highlight as well. But look, we know Pulisic struggled. We know that, you know, he's been struggling for, for playing time right now with Chelsea. It uh, looks a little bit rusty. The, the ideas were there, but the execution wasn't there. You know, hopefully he'll get more and more time at the club level. But look, if, if this is a guy who, you know, we're going to see week in, week out for the national team in important games... If he gets his minutes there, then then so be it. As long as he's able to to get those reps in right, 
Now, it's the same concept with looking at a guy like Ethan Horvath, right? Not getting any time at the club level, but still consistently called into the national team. Uh, if he's going to have his function for the national team, he's going to have his function for the national team. The same thing with, with Reyna, you know, you said it. The ideas are there, the execution, you know, not quite there in the final third. I would really like to see him potentially in midfield going forward. Yeah. He has been kind of a more of a number 10 for, for Bruce Dortmund uh, in that respect. Um, also looking at, you know, d- defensively side of things. Look, Reggie Cannon had some issues today. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to put too, too much into it. You know, uh, I think it comes down to a lack of familiarity and a lack of, uh, of communication more than anything. Because uh, we know what he's capable of. We've seen him in MLS. We've seen him multiple times for the national team. And, you know, he's growing in leaps and bounds at, at Boda Beach as well. But the same thing with, with, uh, with Jonathan Brooks, right? If he's going to be a leader in this team, he has to communicate and organize that defense. You know, you're, you're a senior player. Show that leadership. Uh, you know, we look at the, at the goal, and a lot of people are, are blaming Reggie Cannon for that, right? For, you know, either not putting a tackle in or losing his mark or whatever. But Brooks has to to talk to Aaron Long, right? And, you know, he's coming over to, to Long's side of the field. You know, Reggie Cannon's kind of tucking in, like, you know, either your central defender in in Brooks or your keeper and captain in Zach Steffen, you have to make those little adjustments. You know, Jamaica's not that good of a team, but if you have that lack of communication where guys are just kind of falling all over themselves, uh, that's going to be an issue going forward potentially. Yeah, it was it was difficult for the back line as a whole um, outside of Serginho Dest. I mean, Aaron Long didn't necessarily do his part. Chris Richard, when he came on in the second half, uh, he did all right. Um, but there were still some moments where you're like, okay, this is maybe necessarily tested as much, so we didn't get to see how well Brooks and Richards could do together. Uh, but I do agree, when it came to their really their one opportunity, the communication broke down. Zach Steffen really didn't perform like you would have expected. In that moment, I would have liked to have seen him. And it's hard with a chip. I'm, it's it's a hard to defend, but it looked like he was just kind of standing still and it was more of a reaction. I would have liked him to maybe take another step or two when he realizes that Cannon's beat and there's that far touch in front of him. Uh, look, looking pretty much everywhere else, though, if we're looking up the pitch, I didn't really have a lot of qualms with other people. Um, I mean, Giacchini kind of looked a little bit rough when he subbed in, but only for the first two or three minutes really. And then he got his feet under him and he was able to notch an assist. He did fine. I think, uh, we didn't get to see much of, of the new Jordan Sibachu. I'm, I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. saying his name, right? M- me or cameo. But I think the, the problems of the day fall at the back. Um, it, it wasn't there, it, but it's a scary thing to say that because there really wasn't much to judge them on. And we, we see that as the problem. Yeah, I think you know it comes down to, to familiarity and communication, right? These guys really haven't played a ton together uh, in in recent months between COVID and folks being injured. I do have to give credit to Jonathan Brooks. I think a lot of the time when he was stepping out of the defense and making those passes, especially when the U.S. was pushed further upfield, uh, I thought he did a great job. Took some more risks than I would have liked, but I think in a, a more experienced and a more familiar midfield, 
your midfielders are going to cover you when your defender either steps up or makes yeah. uh, you know an error with a pass like that. Um, you know, no no disrespect to Acosta in that respect. I just think yeah. he's not as familiar with the rest of the team. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's 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 something to look at going forward. And look, I know a lot of people are saying that that Brooks is the the number one guy in terms of uh, you know a lockdown starter in this uh, in this team. But I'm excited to see. We have a lot of options, even in this camp, looking toward yeah. that uh, that Northern Ireland game. That we can check out different pairings. We can see what these guys are capable of. And it's great to know that for, for once in national team history, we have options. Yeah, we have options. One thing looking forward in this game that I would like to see. Well, hold on one second. One second. I feel like I'm about to sin if I don't talk about it real quick. Uh, just special shout out to Eunice Musa for being able to play the first game after he's officially declared, right? And it was a good game. It was a solid game. You knew what to expect. He did get his first assist on the Serginho Desk goal. He's one player that I want to see again moving forward to Northern Ireland as we do transition um, because he just has that level of play that I think it was just solid. You know, and then going to that, we have options. We have options and they need to fill the tactics that we're trying to push. And Yunus Musa really shouldn't be a, hmm, do we start him or not? I think he has showed in granted albeit three u.s games that he does deserve a spot in that midfield three uh because you just know the level of work right here going to get from him he combined well with dest he combined well with acosta and legit and there were no problems there and he's a large reason why um but let's kind of look we have we do have northern ireland that we're playing on sunday what kind of a lineup would you like to see you talk about options what kind of a lineup do you want to see? Let's start at goalkeeper and, and work our way up the field. Well, so right off the bat, we know that Cannon, Brooks, and Giacchini are departing. Yep. So those guys won't be available going forward. It does narrow it down to 23 guys, which is really more of a traditional squad size. Uh, honestly, I, I think it would be nice to see an Ethan Horvath just to get him some reps. This is a guy who consensus quality-wise probably is still the second or third in terms of um, you know options for the national team, we know what what uh, what Stefan's capable of. It does seem like Horvitz is probably actually better distribution wise mm-hmm. than Stefan is. Yeah, uh, which is something that's that's really important to the way that the, that Berhalter wants this team to play. Um, he is capable of a gaffe every now and then, but you know, working through the ideas, working through the errors in a friendly match, right? So. Mm-hmm. And it, obviously, we know what Dunze is really there for experience and exposure. So, um, I would agree with def- d- Defensively is where we have a lot of exciting options, right? Mm-hmm. You know, looking at um, Brian Reynolds still hasn't made his full team debut. Uh, you know, Eric Palmer Brown's finally recalled. Matt Miazga wasn't available for this particular uh, past game because of uh, some injuries, I believe, or maybe left off because of the squad size. So definitely some potential options there. We, you know, we could see a full run out for Anthony Robinson as a natural left back, uh, or even maybe looking at Owen Otisawi either as a defensive midfielder or as a center back. We know he's capable of playing multiple spots. Um, There's options. In terms of yeah, it's it's beautiful. In terms of the midfield, uh, you know, Christian Kappas is, is a guy that we could potentially maybe see. I think he's more of a box-to-box guy than a holding midfielder. Yeah. Um, 
but you know maybe if we uh, as i mentioned kind of bring uh reina into the midfield as number 10 i'd honestly like to see Yunus musa on the right ring where he plays his club soccer mm-hmm. i think it'll be interesting to see just moving parts right where can these guys function in different capacities for us and just understand what our capabilities are in terms of the squad in terms of uh you know the, the overall pool you mentioned daryl dk obviously unfortunate not to see him in this past game due to injury um honestly i would have liked to see more of uh of nico Ciaccini. i would have was too. interesting on the wing there he from my understanding is more of a striker but does have that kind of pace to make an impact on the wing so definitely definitely some some options to kind of experiment with uh would like to see luca dilatore from the start as well i think he's a guy who impressed in limited minutes yeah i think that well i want i want to go back i agree with horvath i was able to say that when it comes to the back line, I really want to see Dest still in there, but at the left back and have Reynolds at right back. Um, I think Dest just is kind of going back to that solid. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like. I, I'm not the biggest fan of Robinson. I think he's good in the attack, but he's a liability in being able to track back. If you go and watch the Jamaica goal, the guy was like jogging. To, yeah, like, we it's, it's we we've seen this time and time again. You know, he's improved for Fulham in that respect, but he's still a guy that we know what he's capable of. And uh, look, it, it might be somewhat limited. It, yeah. it's nice that Sergio Dest is both our best right back and our best left back. Yeah, and and I th- so I th- I want to see Reynolds get a chance to play out there. Um, I think you uh, when you look at the center backs, I want to see Chris Richards and Eric Palmer Brown. Eric Palmer Brown's a left footed center back. In my opinion, he needs to be seriously considered as a potential replacement for John Brooks. Because, I mean, John Brooks likely going to be our starting center back at World Cup next year. But by 2026, I don't know. And so getting Eric Palmer Brown an opportunity to get familiar with the system, being able to grow with someone with Richards, who they're close in age. They both have backgrounds in MLS, respectively, FC Dallas and Sporting Kansas City. And being able to bring that to the field is something that I think is needed um, now. So that way it's not overdue later and we're not being reactive. Give them these small opportunities. So that would be my back line. When it comes to the midfield, there's a lot of options because I don't know how if Burhalter's goal is to, okay, I want to give my my best XI another look or am I going to trust try and give players minutes because if it's to give people more looks then you're going to see a lot of changes but frankly if i was the one who is playing i don't want to see a ton of changes my change would be uh i actually think keeping kalanakosa as the six again give him kind of another look because i think when i talked about a second ago he was a winner and deserved another look now granted is he going to start there probably not because he did play the full 90 minutes um at least I believe he did, and we can expect a change there. But I would like to see that. I would like to see uh, Giovanni Reyna come back into the 10. When you watch him for Dortmund, all of his assists come through the middle. He does play on the wing for Dortmund some, but when he's been successful, it came in that attacking mid, almost like a 10 position, and then have him partner Musa. Give Leggett a little bit of break. Have him sub on. 
Um, and then across the top, if DK is healthy, I want to see him in this game, whether it's from the start, whether it's from the sub, that's dependent on how healthy he is. Otherwise, Sargent is the obvious go-to in the nine. But we did get a hint from Burl Halter after the game that Polisic is going to get the start and is going to get more minutes because there was questions like if he was pulled off due to performance issues, he was quick to say, no, this was a calculated sub. So that way he can get more minutes against Northern Ireland. So I expect him to start play probably around 60 or so minutes. Um, on the other end, I know you wanted to see Musa on the right wing. I don't think Burl Halter sees that. And even though it's playing this person out of position, I would like to see Brendan Aronson from the start. Um, and I would, I think that, would be really interesting because we talked about potential super subs and an Aronson for Pulisic. If you're playing a World Cup qualifying, you're behind. The chances of you subbing out Pulisic are small because you know that he's one of your one, two, three best players. And so if we can get Aronson familiar being alongside of him rather than a replacement, I think that could bring a kind of an interesting dynamic Again, asking a little bit much of him. Um, so for me, I really don't want to see a ton of changes. There will be a ton of changes just because it is a short camp. He does need to get looks at everybody, but that would be my my starting lineup. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it this way. I, I know we're not going to see it because I know Greg is committed to the 4-3-3, but if we could find a way to fit DK and Sibachu in there together, just because I do want to see them both get game time, I mean, we saw, ah, going back to, to the last World Cup qualifying, it was really interesting where uh, Arena sometimes played with kind of a narrow midfield, right? And Pulisic was more of a number 10 in that system. It could be interesting to see either him or Reyna in behind two strikers and yeah. see kind of maybe what an alternate system is. You know, it is nice to have options tactically in that respect, but I don't think we'll see it from Berhalter. He's really more of a 4-3-3 guy. And then, you know, maybe we might see a back three at times uh, like we saw in, in some past friendly games where um, Tyler Adams was playing as, you know, like a right wing back. So, uh, but uh, look, it's a friendly games are there to experiment really, right? You know, I know it's a stronger opponent in Northern Ireland. Uh, contrary to, to you, I think in this respect, I, I don't mind the chop in changing yeah. just because I think the, it's the real test will be you know, maybe Switzerland May 30th before Nations League and before a lot of the official stuff kicks yeah. off as far as, you know, games that actually matter. And they are, frankly, miles above any other opponent that we are going to play in that respect, especially from a friendly perspective. Uh, yeah, I want to say one thing that you did make me think of because I do agree that, well, I said that's my ideal lineup. I expect some changes in there. I, I do expect... Um, Owen, I can't ever say his last name, Atsuusi to play more of the six, probably from the start. And I expect uh, probably Sibachu to get the start because DK's health, um, I'm going to guess, is not up for a start, but maybe like a sub. Anyhow, I, I think there are going to be those changes, even though that's not ideally what I would do. But it's important to note that it's expected of him to make these rotations because when we get to World Cup qualifying, World Cup qualifying got shrunk down because of COVID last year. So now they're playing 14 games, World Cup qualifying games, in the span of this next year, in five cycles. 
So that means in the in that camp they're playing at least three games. And so it's going to be a quick turnaround. You're going to be flying across the country. That's actually one reason that I thought was really smart of Greg to schedule a game at Switzerland versus Switzerland because he said, look, I'm going to have to switch a lineup around game by game by game, and they're going to have to have fly across the country. They're going to have to fly here and there. And I need to know who's mentally and physically capable of that. And that's going to be able to help me determine the roster. And so, yes, expect changes. Um, I think it honestly is a good thing, even though I believe in chemistry and I want to see it because we really don't have a ton of time until we got Gold Cup, Nations League, World Cup qualifying. But we also aren't going to see the same starting 11 every single game of Nations League, Gold Cup, and World Cup qualifying because people are just people. They need rest. They're going to be travel. There's going to be fatigue. And so... The changes that we're going to see are going to be good. This is going to be a stronger opponent in Northern Ireland, but one that I think is a necessary step for us in order to find the success that we're wanting this summer. So with that in mind, if you had to predict right now, Northern Ireland, United States, they play their friendly this Sunday. What do you got as the final score? Uh... Two nothing United States. You know, I've seen a lot of Northern Ireland in Europe qualifying in the past. They are a team that is very compact, and they've definitely they per, they've punched above the weight, right? They're they're a team that's more than the sum of their parts. Uh, in terms of a bold prediction overall, looking forward, uh, look, Kellen Acosta might be second or third choice holding midfielder at this point. You know, I know Jackson Ewell was kind of been the, the backup to Tyler Adams at times. And we know Tyler Adams is a guy who struggled with injury. And uh, we might just have a new guy that's uh, kind of solidified himself in the pool. Yeah. I, I'm i I'm going to give my comment on what I think for the prediction in just a second. I want to comment on that Kellen Acosta thing. Uh, I say my bold prediction with Kellen Acosta, though, starting in the Gold Cup. I don't think you take him World Cup qualifying. I think you send him to the Gold Cup or Nations League maybe. But I think that's where he's going to fit in this summer. But I agree with you. His name has, I mean, he dropped out two years ago, as you said. He's worked his way back. That was a really good performance. He deserves it again. Gold Cup is a good chance to be able to face stronger competition, but not the strongest competition. It's just another step for him. Tyler Adams is going to be your number six um, in World Cup qualifying, barring health and everything. As for this game... As for this game, I think it's going to be closer than people would like. Um, 2-1 is what I'm thinking, United States. Um, part of me actually thinks it could be a draw just because I don't know how well they're going to turn around. And it does depend a lot on the amount of changes and where those changes are at on the field. Um, because if it's a totally new starting 11, then yeah, you're probably actually going to be able to do pretty well and have the the horses to get through the race right at the beginning but if it is people who just played this last week and you got heavy legs around the 60th minute then you got questions and stuff so ultimately it'll be decided on sunday but it's gonna be exciting right absolutely all right everybody well with all of this in mind we have a great weekend ahead of us this sunday the u23 fighting for a chance for the Olympics against Honduras. Tune in on that Sunday evening. 
And then Sunday afternoon, all the way in Northern Ireland, we have the United States playing their final friendly game of this camp against Northern Ireland. Both of those are going to be good games. We've got a great MLS season ahead of us. But as always, this is the MLSDG podcast for the fans, by the fans. We love you, everybody. Thanks for everything.